All right. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, you may or not re- remember, but last time I preached, I finished up Jonah, <clears throat> which actually only took me four sermons. And, uh, you know, with that concluding, I had to decide what was, what was next, and I landed on James. And I'm sure, I'm not sure how long it'll take, but I know it won't be just four sermons. Um, you can start your betting now as to whether it'll be over or under five years. Uh, my guess will be over. Uh, but I'm very excited. It's a wonderful book, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, but before we get into it, let's go before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning asking that you would instruct, encourage, and even challenge us by your word. We recognize that we are completely dependent on you this morning. So please help us by your spirit and point us to your son. Amen. Well, many of us have probably been in situations where a teacher or maybe a coach doesn't actually know how to do the material they're teaching or the sport they're coaching. My younger brother Jacob was a high school teacher for a few years, and since he was preparing to be deployed and would only be there the first few weeks, they had him be a substitute teacher. And this worked out pretty well when he was subbing for English class because that was his specialty. That's what he was That's what he taught when he was a full-time teacher. He could step into the class and just kind of jump right into it because he knew it. He'd engaged with the material and understood it. His major in college was English teaching. However, when he was thrown into a math class, it didn't go so well. He obviously knew the basics of math like most of us do, but when it came to more advanced math like calculus and trigonometry, he could read the notes from the teacher and the lesson plan. And he could read sections out of the book, even complicated sections from the book. But when a student came up and asked him if they could help him on one of their problems, he'd say, I'm I'm sorry, but I I don't know how to do that kind of math. I know it seems like I should because I'm your teacher, but I, I can't help you. I'm sorry. My brother's a sharp guy, but when it came to knowing how to actually work out the problems of trigonometry, he didn't have any experience. It's one thing to sit and listen to a lecture, read a few pages on a topic, but it's not the same thing to be able to actually do it. And this is why the vast majority of college and pro coaches play the game they're coaching, used to play the game they're, they're coaching. It's not just a theoretical game for them. Um, it's not just a list of rules, but they actually played the sport. They experienced it. They know how to do it. If you were to ask a football coach, what, it's like to play, what is it like to play football? They could tell you. How would you answer someone if they asked you, what's it like to be a Christian? Maybe you'd start thinking thinking about things like and talking about the creation, you know, the creation account, what happened in the garden, the fall and how God promised to send a redeemer. You could talk about the story of Israel and the the glimpses of hope we, we had in people like Moses and King David, but we were always left disappointed, always searching for the coming Savior Jesus. We talk about salvation and the cross and and these types of things. And of course, those are all wonderful things to say. But what if they interrupted you and said, yeah, yeah, I've heard of a lot of that stuff, but how do you do it? What does it look like in your daily life? I mean, experientially, how do you do Christianity? And then maybe you'd say, well, have you read the book of James? Because James proves to be an incredibly helpful book when it comes to questions like, How do you do Christianity? What does faith look like? James wants to show us what it looks like to be a Christian in day-to-day life. 
And it's probably no surprise, but my intention is not just to preach a few verses here and there of James, but to preach through the entire book. And since Jared fills the pulpit uh, the majority of Sunday, it's, it's, it's going to take a while. Um, and since we're going to be in James a while, I do want to spend some time introducing the book and getting a general feel for it before we jump into the text. So we'll actually only be doing verse 1 this morning, uh, with, with quite a bit more time spent on introduction and background as well. So really, we'll, we'll, it'll just be broken up into two big parts this morning. Uh, first, our introduction to James, and second, James's introduction to the letter, which is verse 1. So first, our introduction to James. And understanding who wrote James is a good place to start, because that will set the stage for, for date and historical context. So who did write James? Or more specifically, which James wrote James? We actually come across a few James in the, Bible, in the, in the New Testament, in Acts 1.13, right after the ascension of Christ, we see some followers return to Jerusalem to pray, and we see three of them here. Acts 1.12, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were, where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So if you remember, you know, there's only two apostles, or there, there's two apostles named James. So we have James, also referred to as the son of Zebedee, who's the brother of the apostle John. And then there's the other James, also referred to here as, as the son of Alphaeus. Then we have another one uh, of the twelve, Judas, and he's, he's just referred to as a, the son of James here. And this is just a way to differentiate him from Judas Iscariot, who uh, betrayed Christ. Obviously, it's important to make that distinction, right? And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we come across James, the son of Mary. Uh, but he's, he's the son of Mary, the wife of Clophis, not Mary, mother of Jesus. And finally, we have James, the brother of Jesus, son of Mary. And technically, he would be the, the half-brother since they only shared the same mother, but we find this James in a few places in the New Testament. So which James wrote the epistle of James? And what we find is of the five I mentioned, it's almost certain that James, the brother or half-brother of Christ, wrote the letter. We may think James, the brother of the apostle John, may be a good option. But he was actually put to death by Herod Agrippa around A.D. 44. It's probably a bit too early to date this book. So the, the James with the most historical precedent the most agreed upon among Christian scholars, is James, the brother of Jesus. And knowing that it was James, the brother of Jesus, means that it was for sure written before A.D. 62, the year James was martyred. And there are some differing opinions on exactly when it was written, but most likely somewhere in the A.D. 45 to 50 range, maybe up to 55, somewhere in there. And while it may seem somewhat boring to hear about which James wrote it and when it was written, it does set the historical context. With this being written in the AD 45 to 55 range, that means this was most likely the very first New Testament book written. AD 45 is only about 12 years after the crucifixion of Jesus in AD 33. James is probably the earliest existing Christian document that we know of. And when he sits down to write this, the ascension of Christ was only about 15 years ago. So the church is really, really young, just starting out. They had access to the Old Testament, but that's about it. 
all the Gospels and letters that would eventually become canonized in the New Testament, it's not that they didn't have access to them. They didn't exist yet. And that doesn't mean they were without guidance or authority. Of course, they had authority in the Old Testament. The, uh, the, the apostles have, had authoritative voices. But when it came to having something they could read, aside from the Old Testament, they just really didn't have anything. So let's not brush aside the significance of how big of a deal it was for those early believers to have someone with authority in the church write a document they could read. And speaking of authoritative figures in the church, why was it that James had this kind of status? He wasn't, after all, one of the twelve disciples. But then again, Paul wasn't one of the twelve either. But this didn't disqualify him from being an apostle. Paul sees himself as an apostle, and even, even though it was after the ascension of Christ, Christ did appear to Paul. So he did witness the risen Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, how the risen Christ appeared to him as well as James. For I passed on to you the most important, what I have also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. We'll talk about this more later, but, but James wasn't just given a free pass to leadership for marketing because he was a brother of Jesus, right? The resurrected Lord himself appeared to James. So he's in the same category as Paul, one of the, not one of the twelve, but still an apostle with legitimate authority in the church. So much so that apparently he could just write a letter and introduce himself as James with no qualifiers, right? And everyone would know who he is. And James proves to be an interesting letter. It's a very well-known letter in the church today. It's not uncommon to hear someone say it's their favorite book in the Bible. And I'm sure part of the reason for this is this book has somewhat of a proverbial feel to it. It's almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. Sometimes it's even thought of being wisdom literature, but it actually doesn't fit really neatly into any particular genre. Some conclude maybe the best way to view James is a, a brief sermon or homily maybe a distillation of a number of sermons. In any case, it's certainly unique, and there's really nothing else quite like it in Scripture. James is an explosive, in-your-face kind of writer. He's very quotable, straightforward and to the point, and full of vivid imagery while also being intensely practical. And I think this is one of the main reasons Christians are so drawn to James. In fact, it's so to the point and so practical, it can almost become uncomfortable because at times it can seem like a relentless stream of commands. And that's because it is a very imperative, heavy letter. In this short letter, there are 67 imperatives or commands. Roughly one out of every three verses is an imperative or an exhortation. James seems to be very comfortable telling us how to live and exhorting us as to how we should be obedient Christians. And of course, there are many imperatives or commands elsewhere in the New Testament, we, but we are used to there being more indicatives with it, right? And maybe you've heard this phrase before, but the, the grammar of the gospel. And typically, when pe what people are referring to when they use this phrase is that gospel imperatives or exhortations or commands are usually preceded by gospel indicatives or statements of what is true. So, for example, in 1 Peter 2, Peter lays out foundational statements of, of truth about who we are in Christ. 
He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Indicative. Statement of what is true. The next verse. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from, sexual, from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Imperative. Command. This is who you are in Christ, therefore do this. It's a very common pattern in New Testament letters. But James doesn't do that very much. James doesn't really spend much time developing any foundational theology like we are used to seeing in other books. He actually only mentions Jesus a few times. He never mentions the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention sanctification. He doesn't mention the death or the resurrection of Jesus. He does mention justification, but, that, but his little section there has been a source of tension and theological debate for centuries because in chapter 2 he says a person is justified by works, not by faith alone, which is something we're not going to work out today. But it's things like this that made Martin Luther call James an epistle of straw. While Calvin said, James seems more sparing in proclaiming the grace of Christ than it behoove an apostle to be. James just really doesn't spend much time developing theology like we might assume he should, especially after reading some of Paul's letters, which is interesting. James is the very first Christian document that we know of and the earliest book written to be included in the New Testament. Maybe it's just me, but I would have thought James would be thinking, okay, I need to, I need to work out some basic theology, right? Spend some time developing the person of Christ, make sure people know he was both fully God and fully man. We've we got to talk about union with Christ. That's a big thing. Uh, spend some time developing the atonement and justification and sanctification. Of course, sin. How the Holy Spirit regenerates us. All these different things. But he doesn't do that. Which is instructive for us even today. As he's writing these Christians 15 years or so, however long it was, after the Lord Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, these Christians didn't need James to wax eloquent on soteriology, anthropology, pneumatology, or whatever. They needed to know what it looks like to live as a Christian. How do we do Christianity? How do we endure trials? How should we understand temptation? How should we treat the poor? How should our speech and the things we say be different now that we're Christians? How should we pray for each other? These are the types of things that average Christians back then were dealing with on a daily basis. They weren't writing theology papers. They were just trying to get through their day as faithful followers of Christ. And I'm guessing I'm not, I'm not the only one that can identify with that, with that need. How do we do Christianity? How do we do the Word? And James, in his great wisdom, writes to these people he knows and loves, and understanding their situation and needs, he gets very practical. Now, that doesn't mean James is not theological. He's actually very theological because theology worked out in its proper end is always very practical. And there's certainly a place and need for writing theology papers and all that. I'm not against that. But what we find is James often comes at theology highlighting the practical nature of it without always showing us the development of how we got there. But of course, his practical theology is bulletproof. 
The rest of Scripture fully supports James, in no way contradicts it. Even the way Paul speaks of justification dovetails perfectly with how James speaks of justification. And that's great because even though Paul wrote Romans and James wrote this letter, they were both carried along by the Spirit of God. And this is first and foremost the perfect Word of God, and God does not contradict himself. And I say all this just to help frame our minds as we go through James. James is a great book, an amazing book, and as we read, read James and interact with God's Word, we can become uncomfortably aware that the Word of God also reads us, right? It knows us. It sees our flaws and struggles. And if we're not careful, it has the potential to be discouraging as James gives command after command and exhortation after exhortation. But as we often say, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so sometimes we, ju we just will need to remind ourselves of some of the theological underpinnings and indicatives that James maybe assumes rather than explicitly stating. I mean, the very first imperative command in Romans isn't until chapter 6, verse 11. First command in James, verse 2. He's excited. He just he gets right to it. James doesn't write like Paul, and that's great. Because what we have in James is exactly what God intended for us. And of course, part of the reason for this is the context which they are writing, right? In many parts of the New Testament, the author is bringing clarity to theological debates or correcting false teaching within the church. And the book of James was written so early in church history that the theology of the church was still in somewhat of a primitive state. They just hadn't started working out some of the theological nuances that other New Testament books written later would address and develop and put words to. All right, so there's your introduction, introduction to James. Now let's look at James's introduction to the letter. And James only takes one verse to introduce his letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. We've already covered which James this is, the brother of Jesus. But here in verse 1, he gives us no, wonder, no other markers of identity other than just James. And his ability to introduce himself simply as James meant that he was very, no, very well known in the early church. And we see this in the Bible. He's referred to as an apostle by Paul in Galatians 1.19. James takes part in the discussion at the Jerusalem Council. He even makes a speech. In Galatians 2.9, Paul refers to James as, as a pillar of the church. So James was a very prominent and re respected leader in the early church, which may be kind of surprising when we think about what other portions of Scripture tell us about James. Because he didn't always believe. James would have been one of the family members of Jesus we read about in Mark 3.21, where his family wanted to restrain him because they thought Jesus was out of his mind. In John 7.5, we're told that not even the brothers of Jesus believed in him. But something happened to James. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his brother James. And it seems reasonable to conclude that, that at that point, or during, during that interaction, James believed. And, and what, a, what an amazing moment this must have been. James didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, even as he was crucified on the cross. 
And even though James didn't believe he was a son of God at that time, it's no small thing to have your brother crucified. Even though he didn't believe, I'm sure he was mourning the loss of his brother, trying to figure out how things went so badly, so quickly for his brother, they would come to this death on a cross. But then Christ rose from the dead, and he appeared to many, many different people, but he made sure to specifically appear to his brother, James. And he believes. It all makes sense. He believes that his own brother is the Savior of the world, God's Son. And what, what an amazing moment that would have been for both of them, really. Maybe it's just me, but when I think of Jesus, a little boy growing up, it's easy for me, to, for me to assume he was an only child. But he wasn't. Jesus for sure had four brothers and at least two sisters. We see that in Mark 6.3. So you figure four brothers, two sisters, plus Mary and Joseph, and of course Jesus. It's a family of nine. And I don't think all seven of those kids had their own bedroom, Right? It was probably a very full house, and James spent a lot of time with Jesus and knew Jesus very well. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to even imagine, but just try and imagine what it would be like to have Jesus as a brother. It's, it's weird enough to imagine growing up with Jesus, but to th- share the same mom as the God-man Jesus Christ? So, so at the very least, we would maybe expect James to play the brother card in his introduction, right? That would give him some clout. James, the brother of Christ, whom I played with in my childhood years. But he makes absolutely no mention of being the brother of Jesus. Instead, he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant, not not even apostle, not a leader, but a servant. Or it could be translated slave. And what a remarkable thing to say, that you're a slave of your own brother. It's certainly not normal even in the first century. But then again, James's brother isn't normal, right? He's a risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in James's mind, that's what's important. That's what's life-changing. That's what matters way more than being the brother of Christ. James grew up as as a Jewish person, so it's no surprise he would call himself a servant of God. Every Jewish person, every Jewish person would say that. But in the same breath, he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he refers to Jesus as Lord, we need to make sure we understand the significance of this. It was very common in this time for the Greek-speaking Jewish people to use and read from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And hundreds of times, a Greek word, kurios, often translated as Lord, is used for God's divine covenant name in the Old Testament. And James used this name, this title, Kyrios, translated Lord, to refer to Jesus. He says he's a servant of God, the Lord Jesus. So he equates Jesus with the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. Which for any non-believing Jewish person, for for someone to say this is, is not only ridiculous, but incredibly offensive and blasphemous. And then top it off, he adds Christ after Jesus. We're all very used to the pairing of of Jesus Christ. It it can be easy to just place Christ in the category of of name, right? But to first century Jewish people, Christ was not a name, it was a title. Christ meant the anointed one or Messiah. Jesus is not only Lord, 
but he's also the expected king and deliverer of the Jews. He's the promised one. He's the one they've been waiting for. The people James is writing to are, most, are, are likely mostly, if not all, Jewish believers. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. But he writes into this predominantly Jewish context, and especially for any Jewish people who are not believers. These are very big, bold, and offensive things to say. The earliest Christian document ever written that we're aware of, and James comes out swinging. He's so confident and unashamed of who Jesus is. James doesn't say, I I know there are some different views on this, but Jesus is the Lord and the Christ, and I realize that can be offensive to some people, but I want to be careful how I speak about this. No. I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James knows this is offensive, but he doesn't care, because what he's saying is true. Though offensive, he's comfortable and confident saying this because it's true and what people needed to hear. And as we think of James' boldness, it can be helpful to ask ourselves, how comfortable are we with letting Jesus be as offensive as he truly is? If you think cancel culture is bad today, you know what they did back in James' day? They killed him. We know James, the brother of the the Apostle John, didn't write this letter because he had already been killed. He was beheaded by Herod in AD 44 because of his belief. The author of this letter, James, the brother of Jesus, would eventually be martyred as well. Likely around AD 62, he was stoned by the scribes and Pharisees because he refused to renounce his commitment to Jesus. We're in the midst of a culture today that often finds Jesus to be offensive, right? They may appreciate him as a teacher, how he helped the poor and healed the sick, But the exclusivity of Jesus is offensive. The godness of Jesus is offensive. The sexual ethic of Jesus is offensive. It can be tempting to want to hide or even avoid those offensive aspects of Jesus today. So we ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? Are we more concerned about our social status than we are of the truth? Even if offensive, of Jesus. Are we quick to change the trajectory of the conversation when we see it headed towards uncomfortable topics? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we should ever be rude or inconsiderate. We should always strive to be gentle, tactful, wise, and winsome in our conversations. After all, the truth of Jesus taking root in our hearts will actually enable us to to truly flourish as humans, bringing gentleness and humility. And James will certainly press us on the ethical implications of the lordship of Christ through this letter. But we, like James, are servants of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, too, should be bold and confident in who we serve, not shying away from how Christ confronts our culture, even if uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. James is going to bring the lordship of Christ to bear on our lives lives by pushing us to think through things like, how does this inform our understanding or approach to poverty and wealth? How does this inform our time management? How are we to speak to others and about others? James is going to challenge us. And the gospel-rooted ethical fruit that James exhorts us to throughout this book will leave us absolutely discouraged and defeated if if, if we leave the gospel out and think that James' instruction for us is to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and climb the the ladder of moral superiority all on your own type of instruction. James is not setting forth ethics through this letter just for the sake of having some sense of morality we can 
and we can put, put, pat, pat ourselves on the back or something. James's morality comes from a place of realizing that he's a slave and servant to Christ. That Jesus is Lord. And so our lives will be forever changed and continually challenged, not only by who Jesus is, but how Jesus calls us to live as Christians. And what we will find as we go through James, that, it, that his teaching actually has many similarities to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus and James both speak to things like joy and suffering, being perfect and mature, asking and praying in faith, riches being like grass, hearing and doing, God choosing the poor, doing the whole law, fruit indicating the tree, peacemaking, serving two masters, and there are even more we could list. So in many ways, James is developing, readdressing, and re-emphasizing the teaching of Jesus. Because James is no longer just the brother of Jesus. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything has changed. And then we come to the second half of verse 1. Who exactly is the audience or group of people James is, re- is writing to? It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> to, the 12 apo- to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. For us, that may seem like kind of an odd way to direct a letter, right? But given historical context and James referring to, James referring to the 12 tribes, we can conclude that he's, he's most likely writing to primarily Jewish believers. James referring to them as the 12 tribes dispersed abroad would have made perfect sense to them in their, in their current situation and history as Jews. The word translated dispersed comes from the Greek word diaspora, which very literally means a scattering, dispersion, or, or sowing of seed. However, it became a common word used to describe what happened to the Jews after the exile. After they were conquered by the Assyrians and later the Babylonians and exiled from their own homeland, Jewish people ended up dispersed all over the Middle East. They were dispersed everywhere, and for many Jewish Jewish people, they never returned home. So you just ended up with many Jewish people scattered throughout the Middle East, even up into the first century when this letter was written. And we we kind of get a sense what that must have been like for them, even, even with things going on today, right? It was over a year ago now that Russia invaded Ukraine, and we saw it, right? We saw the tragic news stories of thousands of Ukrainian people leaving their homeland and scattering all over the world. And as the war drags on over a year now and still going, many of those who have scattered have slowly been putting their roots down in whatever place they ended up in. And many will never return home. They built their new lives somewhere else. And it's similar with the Jewish dispersion. So even now, it was, even, even though it was hundreds of years after the exile that James wrote this, the Jews are still dispersed all over the Middle East. Many of them never returned to Israel. And the Jewish people were especially aware of this as they were familiar with the, the Hebrew Scriptures because God promised in various places in the prophets that he would gather or reconstitute the dispersed 12 tribes. See that in Isaiah 12, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37. I'll speak to this. Ezekiel 37, 21 and 22. This is what the Lord says. I am going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from around the, 
from around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountain of, mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over them all. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. So when James says this to his mostly Jewish audience, it tapped into their sense of longing and corporately shared hope of what, of what God had promised to them. But this hope wasn't just for Jewish believers. It's for Gentile believers too. It's for us. And yes, this letter is written mostly, primarily to an audience of Jewish believers, but it certainly doesn't exclude the Gentiles either, right? The next book in the Bible, 1 Peter, was written primarily to a Gentile audience. And look how Peter starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad, right? So, so James recognizes that there are ethnic Jewish believers scattered all over the place. And Peter recognizes there are Gentile believers scattered all over the place. And you see how this starts to come back and connect to the first half of the verse? Servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not a name. It's a title. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the king who has come to gather his people from all over the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation, from Jewish believers to Gentile believers, from the poor to the rich to the outcast to all the brokenhearted people who have come to find their true rest in Christ. The scattered people of God all over the world are the gathered people of God under one king. And this is so crucial for us to remember because as, as we are gathered here in Portland, we, we can feel the tension, right? Yes, we're gathered and united under, Lord Je under our Lord Jesus. We are, we're already citizens of the kingdom of God. But it's not yet what it will one day be. Portland, cer Portland certainly isn't known as being a Christian city or even a city that's friendly to Christians. And if we're honest, we can feel, dis feel discouraged and maybe even hopeless at times. It can be difficult. The believers, of, the believers James was writing to certainly felt the difficulties and trials of life. James, of course, understood that too. He's going to talk about trials in verse 2. But what is James' assumption? Well, generally speaking, these believers are going to stay right where they are, scattered abroad. You see that? He, he doesn't say to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, you should all move to the same town so we can be together. No, no, you're already together. Yes, we are scattered geographically, but we are the one people of God. Our hope is not in a geographical location here on earth that we can, that we can be together, right? And this is part of what the, what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews 12, as he's encouraging people in the amazingness of the new covenant. We don't want the old covenant. Instead, Hebrews 12.22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriad of angels, a, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge God who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says things better than the blood of Abel. And that's what we hope in. The city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, of course, I understand people move for all sorts of reasons, right? Jobs, life circumstance, family, whatever it may be. I'm not, I'm not saying you can't move, right? But what I, am, what I am saying is that, generally speaking, even as we can be discouraged by the culture around us, God has set every one of us down in the exact place he wants us to be. And even as we're scattered around Portland, here we are gathered on a Sunday morning to worship the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gathered us to himself and gave us a hope beyond this world, beyond this location, beyond this time. So, how do we do it? How do we live in the meantime while we are waiting for the final return of Christ? Well, James is going to have a lot to say about that as we go through this book together. Let's go before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you have sent the Lord Jesus, that you allow us to joyfully serve him, that we can gather this morning to worship you. And Lord, we also thank you that that we can scatter once again as we we strive to faithfully serve you in our day-to-day lives. We ask for wisdom and grace as we go. In your Son's name, amen.